Hello. This week we're looking at Target Northwest, a booklet published in 1982 which asked what would happen to the northwest of England in a nuclear war. I had intended to discuss the booklet in its entirety here, but once I started digging into the thing, I found it was very detailed. So we'll look at one chapter today and we'll come back to the others at a later date. But first, who is the author who wrote this? It was published by the Richardson Institute and their website says they're the oldest peace research centre in the UK, formed in 1969. So let's be on our guard at the mere mention of peace as an academic subject. The whole area of peace studies created a whole lot of trouble when it began to enter schools in Britain in the 1980s. See my previous episode called The Scourge of the Lefties for more on that. My book's chapter on children in schools will also look at this in depth. It compares nuclear war preparation in American schools, where many of them were taught nuclear drills, how to duck and cover, or how to crouch in the basement with their heads tucked in towards the skirting board. But there was no such nuclear uh, practising or planning in British schools. And so the closest that the nuclear topic came to the classroom was in the 80s when many schools began adopting peace studies. And oh, it created a huge fuss, especially between the left-leaning teaching unions and the right-leaning Thatcher government and her various education secretaries. So let's look at what the Richardson Institute thought a nuclear attack on the northwest of England might look like. I will focus today on the chapter called Law, Order and State Security. Although I'm from Glasgow, I've got a connection to the northwest of England and that I go there every single year. Although, obviously, Covid stopped me going last year. I go to Blackpool on holiday, as so many working-class Glaswegians have done since the Victorian age. Lots of people abandoned that practice when cheap foreign holidays became a thing in the 70s. But not me. Blackpool, every year. In between visits to Chernobyl and nuclear bunkers, obviously. So I'm worried this document we're looking at might describe the annihilation of Blackpool. Could nuclear war succeed where Ryanair has failed? Blackpool would probably be safe, relatively safe, from a direct nuclear attack. See my previous podcast episode about that topic called Survive Beside the Seaside. And yes, this uh, booklet uh, doesn't have a lot of high hopes for the northwest of England. It starts with a very grim introduction 
saying the nuclear threshold has dropped alarmingly and that war is likely. We all know that nuclear war was more likely. The early 80s were a time of incredible, terrible tension. But I would venture to suggest that they're over-egging the pudding here, as is often the case with activists or people who are pushing a certain point of view. And that instantly puts me on my guard. I feel like I'm being sold something here or prodded towards a certain point of view. They quote a researcher who uses the most lurid language imaginable. He says, In the course of an hour, Europe can be turned from a garden continent thronged with admiring tourists into a festering ruin, far worse than all the other hells Europeans have ever made. Now, we know, every person listening to this podcast knows that nuclear war would be hell. And that's why I instinctively cringe at this florid writing. We know. Why are you trying so hard to convince us? They cite a pamphlet called Crucible of Despair and go on to call a post-nuclear Britain the darkest corner of a dead continent. Now, all of this reads not like a nuke has exploded, but that a thesaurus has. Words, big flowery words everywhere, language dripping down the walls and running in the gutters. I don't like being prodded and persuaded by that style of high-flown writing. You don't need to convince me or anyone, surely, that nuclear war would be hell. So why are you trying to? Picking our way through the words, the thick, gloopy words, we see that they're accusing the government of underplaying the effects of nuclear weapons. Now, fine, I can accept that. The whole notion of civil defence arguably rests on that same thing, the underplaying of nuclear weapon effects. Otherwise, why would you bother with it at all? But let's dive into the document here. It's, it's big, it's 60 pages long, and it looks at what nuclear war would do to things like communications, the health service, food stocks, the water supply, the fire brigade. But we'll start here with the chapter about law and order. I chose that... Um, Firstly, because it's, it's interesting, obviously, but it's also the chapter that I'm currently working on for my book, and it's one of the darkest areas of civil defence planning. This and the, the chapter on the health service are the, the two chapters I've written which have really given me chills. Often, and long-term listeners will know this, we can find a certain dark humour in British nuclear war planning, but it all goes out the window when we're looking at health service and the control of the population. No room for laughs there at all. So let's begin. Obviously we don't know what a post-nuclear society would look like, but I assume it would be chaotic and brutal and there would be easy violence and a slide towards anarchy. I assume that if you had a stock of food or water, someone would try and take it from you. Not out of nastiness, but out of sheer desperation. It would be a society where everything had been smashed and lost. And so, when people have absolutely nothing to lose, we can assume that they will become desperate. Once the initial numbing effect of disaster syndrome has worn off, perhaps... And we've looked at that in previous episodes. So, if you were living like that, 
in fear of every single person who limped past you in the ruins, wouldn't you be glad to know that there was still a functioning police force? That there was still a bunch of people out there committed to restoring some kind of order? I would. I almost feel embarrassed to say that. I spend too much time on Twitter, perhaps, where there are lots of activist types who want to get rid of the police. But I've never had a bad experience with the police, so I've got no reason to fear or dislike them. But then we could turn that on its head and say, well, the the British police have <laughs> never had a, an experience like nuclear war. So perhaps neither side would know exactly how they would react. But if I had to tick a box right now saying, after the worst crisis imaginable, would you rather have anarchy or the boys in blue? Well, give me the boys in blue, I'll take my chances with them. But this booklet seems intent on convincing me that the police are a bit of a sinister force. Admittedly, there were some quite uncomfortable news stories of them overstepping the mark with the COVID rules and... Maybe that would be magnified by a hundred, a thousand, after a nuclear attack. Maybe they would indeed be power-crazed and cruel, just as nasty and merciless and demented as the rest of us. But, even though it sounds unfashionable, I'd still rather have them bang on the door after the bomb drops than a bunch of starved, crazed locals here to take my stuff. So what happens to your policeman, your friendly local Bobby, (laughs) after nuclear war? This section opens with a quote from something called the Army Land Operations Manual, Volume 3. And it says, The military forces and the police must be considered as one security force, operating jointly, in a previously rehearsed plan. Now, you could read that as sinister, or you could say, well, that's just natural. That's what happens in time of crisis. We see that all the time in Britain. We saw it recently with COVID. The army were called out to help. As long as it's clear that the army are working to assist the police and that they're not equal partners, then that already happens in Britain. Now, of course, it says they must operate, they will operate jointly in a previously rehearsed plan. We don't know what that plan is, or I don't know what that plan is. But certainly, um, there is the idea, and Peter Hennessy has written about this in The Secret State, that police and army, well, we might see um, Britain turn into some kind of military state after a nuclear war, ruled by the generals, not the politicians. And my exception to that is, well, how long for? If you're talking about a couple of weeks until we are over the initial absolute chaos and horror. I could live with that. But if we're talking about months, years, then then no, obviously. What's the point of surviving? Trying to rebuild your civilization if the society you're building is one that's going to be ruled by the military? No, thank you. But I just do feel that I'm being prodded very firmly here by this booklet to see army and police as natural baddies or enemies of the people, and that, to me, seems a bit like student politics. (laughs) 
The whole question of law and order and security after nuclear war is so interesting because it exposes the crack running down the middle of British nuclear war planning. In the early Cold War, in the atomic age, it used to be about saving the people. But then it changed into ensuring the survival of the state. Rescue and aid became continuity of government. Tea and blankets were out and cold, hard control was in. The booklet refers to the minor strikes of the 70s. Of course, the most famous of the minor strikes was in, what was it, 1983, 84, under Arthur Scargill, but this document, remember, was written in 82, so that hadn't reached its peak yet, but it points to the various strikes in the 70s and says the government were already viewing the population then as a threat. There was a lot of talk of the internal threat. Now, I wasn't alive in the 70s, but obviously everyone knows that it was a, in Britain it was we were absolutely riddled with strikes. And the booklet here says that this was seen as an excuse in some quarters to gear up local emergency government and look at the idea of military interventions. Or the booklet suggests that the army will be involved in suppressing riot and revolution after a nuclear attack, and they list the many barracks and army training camps in the northwest region. They list them, saying that they could easily be turned into internment camps. Now, it's no secret that the roundup of subversives would be one of the roles of the police in the countdown to nuclear war. We've discussed that plenty of times before. We see it happen in threads. Uh, we see the left-wing um, woman in a woolly poncho who was giving a speech in Sheffield saying you cannot win a nuclear war. We later see her being gently but firmly placed into the back of a police car. So rounding up troublemakers, or those perceived as such by the authorities, would be a police role. And as we know, the army, of course, would be called in to support the police in time of crisis. So therefore it's not impossible that the army might be the ones to bundle our subversives into vans. But where do they go, all those rounded-up lefties in their ponchos and woolly hats? Well, according to this booklet, the many army barracks in the northwest could easily be turned into internment camps. And it says these are at Warcop, never heard of Warcop, Halton, Wheaton, Bury, Chester, Liverpool, the list goes on. And there are various army HQs at Carlisle, Ardwick, Chester and West Derby. Although I don't see why West Derby is listed here as a northwest facility. So there are plenty of sites in the northwest from where the army could launch their operations and plenty of sites where they could imprison all the CND supporters they gather. Now, what of the police? The booklet says that they too, just like the army, have been sharpening their counter-subversion activities in recent years. But in a Britain which was full of strikes and industrial disputes and riots on the streets, could we really blame them? Wouldn't we be moaning if they hadn't attended to it? We're reminded also that the police have a role in sounding the four-minute warning and that the carrier control points, which would 
initiate that are in the main police stations, these being the HQs at Bolton, Manchester, Rochdale, Wigan and Hutton. The booklet adds that some of these are connected via hardened telephone cables to an underground exchange at Manchester Piccadilly and that the hardened cables pass by the Crown Court, which is, uh, I'm quoting here from the booklet, the Crown Court itself contains a restricted area giving access to cellars, secretly fitted up by the Ministry of Defence in 1976 with, among other things, a ventilation system that can flood the place with gas. Okay, come on. Seriously. Are you telling me that a British court (laughs) has special cellars kitted out by the MOD to effectively act as gas chambers? Come on! But let's try and be sensible about this. The booklet had a little footnote beside that. So I scurried to the end and I looked up the reference and it was something called Mole Express. Okay, Mole Express. At this point, I thought, I'm going to contact Phil Catling. Phil is uh, one of my patrons. He kindly supports this podcast. Thank you, Phil. And Phil is uh, an expert on the tunnels and all the underground stuff in and around uh, Manchester. So I thought, Phil is the man here. So I sent him a message on Facebook and (laughs) I just sent him a screenshot saying, what on earth is this? about gas chambers beneath the Crown Court. And while we're at it, Phil, what on earth is Mole Express? Have you ever heard of it? And yes, Phil was the man. Phil knew about this and he said that I could quote his message here. Let's see what Phil said to me. Well, firstly, the Mole Express, Phil tells me, was a a zine in Manchester, um, kind of underground counterculture thing. And he said the Mole Express zine isn't the most reliable I think we could have guessed that by its title and by the fact it's claiming that there are gas chambers beneath a British Crown Court. And um, I asked him, you know, what's this deal about chambers and cellars deep beneath uh, the Crown Court? And Phil said, the court will be Minshall Street. It doesn't really have cellars as the lower level is at the canal side. He went on to say, I suspect this is a mix of rumours coming together, as very close by is the London Road Fire Station, which had massive training rooms and is a warren. I wonder if the breathing apparatus training rooms have got mixed in with the Crown Court cells. And he added, but it's definitely not the court. They have been complaining about lack of space (laughs) since the 1890s. And if you look at the Wikipedia page for that court... Uh, you'll find it under City Police Courts Manchester, commonly called Minshall Street Crown Court. The entry says at one point, talking about the design of the building, the central tower he used there is placed asymmetrically at the police courts due to the constraints of the site. As Phil said, not exactly spacious. So we can assume there are not big gas chambers beneath the Crown Court in Manchester. The booklet also talks about big police computers. Now, let's remember, of course, this was 1982, and we know that, of course, the idea of using computers and policing was still relatively new. We know that because of the awful mistakes made in the Yorkshire Ripper inquiry. They were still working on pen and paper. 
Peter Sutcliffe was um, interviewed, I think, about five times by the police. And there was simply no way that his name would ping up onto the system because there was no system apart from absolute forests of paper stuffed into drawers. So yes, let's not mock them. The idea of police computers and having your name on the system, that was still quite new and perhaps intimidating for some in the early 80s. And yes, surprise, surprise, this booklet goes out of its way to make it seem sinister. Could have saved lives had they used it in the Yorkshire Ripper inquiry, but no, in this context, this booklet is determined to make it seem sinister. They are going to use this big police computer, which lies underground, accessible only by dark tunnels, and they will find you if you're a subversive, and they will use it to, quote, neutralise you. The worry, of course, is that a very wide net will be thrown out by the police at this stage and it will scoop up some innocent folk along with those who might well be intending damage and revolution. The worry, of course, comes after the war. If and when there is a chance of rebuilding a society, as we said at the beginning of the podcast, do we want to be rebuilding it into something which is ruled by the military and the police? Do we want to be rebuilding a society where there are blokes in charge who want to scoop up every single person who ever signed a petition or wore a badge? Is there to be no dissent at all? I can see the value of that in the last days before nuclear war, but not in the long, painful stretch afterwards, the long years into recovery. Because if we are able to recover, and if we are being moulded into that kind of society then what's the point? If survivors perceive the state as being cruel and oppressive, violent, then why would they willingly recognise and obey the police? They've already lost everything. You have nothing else to threaten them with, except perhaps a bullet in the head or the withholding of food. But how do you recover from the most devastating war imaginable if the people despise you and fear you? People might be tempted to indeed pursue anarchy, to indeed break away, form their own societies, throw up barricades and do it their own way. They've got nothing to lose. They might even have something to gain by doing that. So I can't see any plausible recovery, long term, that's run by police and army. You're going to have to snap back into civilian control as soon as possible. Moving on, we're told the police had a reason to be afraid, very afraid, of Hume. Hume, of course, is an area in Manchester, to the south of the city centre, I think. And without looking at Google Maps, I had an, an immediate bad impression of Hume. I, I didn't know why, but I associate Hume with urban decay. Of course, Manchester, uh, lots of Manchester, like my own city, Glasgow, had its Victorian slum housing demolished after the war with hideous new estates built instead. And I think we've now all realised that was a big fat mistake. And please don't think I'm being a snob in saying that. I was raised in one of those horrible council estates, Fern Hill, outside Glasgow. So I had the same impression of Hume And googling it, I saw that yes, Hume had suffered the same treatment that a lot of Glasgow had. Rip out the old Victorian neighbourhoods, flatten it all and replace it with something concrete. 
and these new estates created a lot of social problems. But sticking to our booklet here, the authorities in Manchester had another reason to fear Hume. And it wasn't because of any antisocial behaviour on the estates. The booklet refers to the Sam Cummings Inter Arms Warehouse in Hume. Apparently, this warehouse in this troubled part of the city contained, quote, 400,000 rifles, enough to arm both sides of a small war. And Manchester police have contingency plans to seal off this potentially anti-state arsenal in times of civil unrest. According to the New York Times, Sam Cummings was the world's biggest dealer in small arms, and yes, he had a big warehouse in Hume, and that must have kept the police bigwigs awake at night. Enough to arm both sides of a small war. So my conclusion from the Law and Order chapter here is that the authors seem often indignant that the British police are trained in how to deal with riots and civil unrest, even though Britain of that era, the early 80s, was being scarred by riots and civil unrest. So instead of seeing it as sinister, I just see it as natural, it's it's their job. So yes, the police and the emergency planners were looking at ways to manage and control the population after nuclear war. So I'm not too impressed so far by this booklet, especially (laughs) given that they referenced the Mole Express as though it was some worthy academic tome. I don't know. Who do you trust in nuclear war planning? Seems like you have to choose between the sinister blokes making their evil plans in the bunkers or the peace campaigners quoting Mole Express. So we're finished the podcast for this week. I'm sorry the podcast has been patchy this month. Um, Normally, of course, it comes out every Monday and I have skipped the last two weeks. I put out a a message to my patrons last week apologising and explaining that my book is due now in July, down to the last few weeks. And so obviously, as I'm sure you'll understand, that's been getting all of my attention. And so yes, the podcast has had to be put on the back burner. So between now and July, I expect to be scared and panicky and working very hard. So if I miss a week or two between now and July, I hope you will understand and excuse me. And I hope you will stick with Atomic Hobo. It will hopefully be worth it when the book is out. No, let's be confident. It will be worth it when the book is out. The book will be good. Remember, if you want to support my podcast or my nuclear work, uh, please look at my Patreon page, which is patreon.com forward slash Atomic Hobo. And I've got some new patrons to say hello to this week. Let me say hello and thank you to Scott Milkarek. And now, Scott, I think I'm probably pronouncing your surname wrong. Thank you also to Kyle Graham and John Spunkmeyer, who've also joined up this month. And Adam Gilmore has increased his pledge. Adam, you're now at the Super Hobo level, which means that you get your name in the acknowledgement section of my book, amongst your other rewards. So if that floats your boat, please take a look at my Patreon. There are lots of different levels you can sign up to, with different rewards pinned to each one. 
So thank you everyone for listening. Please do take a look at my Patreon page if you want to support me. And I will be back again, hopefully on Monday, with another episode.